Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Chris the Chew Man Chew, and I'm joined by my co-host Beck Raymond Colker and our producer Dr. Clara Mao. Say hi, guys. What's up? Hey. Our guest tonight is Dr. Brandy Kenner Bell, who discusses acne. But first, let's remind you what the show is about. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Brandy Kenner Bell. Dr. Kenner Bell completed a pediatric residency at Baylor College of Medicine, a dermatology residency at Northwestern, and her pediatric dermatology training at Lurie Children's Hospital. She is currently an assistant professor of pediatrics and dermatology at Northwestern and Lurie Children's Hospital. She teaches us about the age distribution of acne, how to counsel patients on lifestyle modifications, and which oral medications to step up to. Dr. Kenner Bell discloses that she serves on the advisory board at Verica Pharmaceuticals, for which she has received honoraria, but this did not have any bearing on our conversation today. I'm freaking out to get started on this episode and hoping we don't have to retouch too much. That was not my best work. <laughs> nice. It's okay, we'll clear up some misconceptions here. <laughs> just one after another, after another. We just keep coming. They keep popping up. They keep popping up. Oh my god. Okay, let's move right on. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, Dr. Kenner Bell. You said before the show that you are saw sometimes called Dr. KB. Is it okay if we call you this? Absolutely. Oh, wow. I feel very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, We generally like to start with a few rapid fire questions so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. So just to start off, can you give us a one liner to describe yourself? I am a pseudo foodie, (laughs) traveling gypsy. uh, Yeah, that's probably me. Pseudo foodie, (laughs) traveling gypsy. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't normally like to ask follow up questions because I like to just kind of have them stand alone. But what does pseudo foodie mean? Pseudo foodie means. I I need to know. I I love food. I love to eat and try new restaurants and things, but I have lines in the sand. So I won't eat fried um, insects won't do it okay. and I don't feel like you can be a foodie if you're not willing to try everything so there's some lines in the sand so I call myself a pseudo foodie because I like to believe I'm a foodie but I know that there are certain things that there are places I will not go totally fair you have boundaries I, I, boundaries. I think fried insects is uh it, it's a very reasonable <laughs> line that I think most foodies would not consider like a, a difficult thing to also yeah. draw the line at I don't know yeah <laughs> I I feel like you, I'm gonna like you can identify how you identify but I don't think that just qualifies qualifies you from being a foodie <laughs> as a self-identified food lover but like pescatarian basically you know it's like hard it's hard out here insects you know or beef anyways <laughs> awesome but that's yeah i love to eat excellent clara Beautiful. you should go yeah i think that's one of my favorite bios that we've ever gotten um <laughs> 
Um, so my question um, is, you know, whether it's like a book or a piece of media, a podcast, a TV show, do you have any recommendations for us that we should check out? This has nothing to do with medicine, but I think that um, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, is probably one of the single best things I've ever listened to. And I think it's really important that you do the audiobook because, you know, he speaks like 13 different languages or whatever. And so he reads the audiobook. And so a lot of the audiobook has lines in other languages and he speaks those and he just brings such a depth and a, you know, he's a comedian, but like any good comedian, he's a social commentator. And so... He's is phenomenal. Like I just think it's phenomenal. Wow, I'll need to check that one out. Yeah, that's like I feel like we don't get a lot of like we'll get like podcast recommendations and book recommendations, but not a lot of like, no, please enjoy this media in the in the voice of the author. That's yeah, awesome. It's really good. <laughs> that's a great that's a great one. Um all right, I'm gonna ask my my question that I often ask is what's the best advice you ever received as a learner or maybe even as a teacher or during your career? I think the best advice I've received as a learner is to don't take it too personally. You know, having done two residencies and a fellowship, I was wrong plenty of times, plenty of times. And, you know, sometimes you get corrected very nicely. And sometimes people correct you in ways that are not so nice. I have some, you know, standout moments in my head that I'll never forget. But, you know, ultimately, you know, you you live to see another day, you know, you take it for what it is, you learn, you know, whatever you're supposed to take from it. And hopefully you, you know, you do better next time. That doesn't mean that people should always talk crazy to you. But when they do, and they will at times, you know, you just keep it moving. Don't take it personal. Awesome. That's fantastic advice. Fantastic advice. I Uh, I want, I want to like hear more from Dr. KB. Um, But I also want to hear so much about acne. So I have so so much to learn. So much to learn. I'm breaking out just, you know, thinking about it. All the stress. All the stress. I know. Oh, I like that. Should we jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. Um, So our patient is Maya. She is 15 and she's coming in for her well child check. Um, she wants to talk about her acne because she's really self-conscious about it. She has um, erythematous comedones, pustules, and papules kind of all over her forehead and cheeks. And she tells you that she washes her face twice daily with a salicylic acid cleanser. And she wears a good amount of makeup to cover up the lesions and the scars at school. So starting off at the basics, what what causes acne? So that's a great question because acne is actually multifactorial. So there's not one thing that causes acne. It's a combination of hormones that cause different effects um, on sebaceous glands that cause different degrees of inflammation. And then you have environmental factors that play a role as well. And so acne is what we is a definition of a multifactorial problem, um, which is why so many of our treatments kind of come from all these different angles to attack the different aspects of acne. I'm trying wow. to decide. Like, I'm like, I'm my my brain is like, I'm like, where do we go with that? Like, that is so exciting, and like, so many different <laughs> like components to that answer. And I'm like, wait, I need to know more about all of this because I really do think of it as like, I mean, I guess there is like what causes acne, but also like what is acne is like, I guess my best follow up question. Like, it's a multifactorial process, but but what is it? Like, do we have a definition? Um, yes. So acne is an inflammatory process that is based around hair follicles. 
it involves all units, I mean, all parts of the pilosebaceous unit. So the sebaceous gland, the hair follicle itself, the dermis, which creates like, you know, that nice little cytokine milieu that's going to be affected by your hormones and the inflammatory mediators that are coming in there. So acne is an inflammatory process of the hair follicle. Now, you were sort of saying that um, because, you know, the definition is a little difficult because of so many different causes, or I guess that's not the right way of saying it, but you were saying that there are a lot of different causes for acne. Are there larger buckets that we're able to maybe fit these into uh, so that we have a better understanding of some of these etiologies? Yeah, I think um, the first is inflammation. So your immune system is involved in acne. Um, the second is, the, like I said, the anatomy, the pilosebaceous unit. Um, that's going to be affected by that. And the third probably is the hormonal component, which, you know, people don't just have hormones when they're teenagers, which is why acne is not just a teenage condition. So those are probably the three buckets I would put things in. And kind of jumping off of that question, like I know this patient is a 15-year-old, she's a teenager, but we see a lot of acne in, in peds, maybe like infants, and then say someone comes in and they're seven or eight years old and they have acne versus someone who's coming in, in this case, who's 15 years old. What do you think about acne in each of those age groups and like when is it? kind of a red flag for something else that might be going on. So there's some guidelines that came out now at this point, I guess I could say probably several years ago um, for pediatric acne. And one of the biggest kind of um, takeaways from that is that acne should be divided by when it began. And so they define that as um, neonatal acne, which is basically the first, you know, six weeks of life. Infantile acne, which goes from six weeks to about a year or to two years, technically. And then mid-childhood, which is from two to seven pre-adolescent, which is from 7 to 12, and then adolescent acne, which is from 12 and up. So the only time we get off the bat worried is really mid-childhood acne. So any acne that starts between the age of 2 and 7, and that's because they have very little hormonal activity, um, very little inflammation that's happening in their bodies that would contribute to anything. And so those kids, you kind of assume a different primary process that may be contributing to their acne, as opposed to all the other age groups, You can, unless you see other signs and symptoms of other conditions, you can assume that it's quote unquote, just acne. Mind you, this is when it started. So if you have a kid who started acne, having acne when they were one, and they still have it at three, that's not mid-childhood acne. That's infantile acne. Okay, because you classify it by the time at which it started. Now, these different classifications and where they started, these types, is there a reason why, what's the main reason why they're classified at, the, at these specific age ranges? Um, is, is there a hormonal component, like you had said, or is it a combination of hormonal and other things? Or um... Yeah, I think um, neonatal acne is a designation because much of that is related to maternal hormones. And so, you know, although it drives me crazy that most pediatricians call any baby rash baby acne, which is probably not. Um, <laughs> that is the age when you would get true, you know, baby acne is in those first six weeks, you know, usually because of maternal hormones. Between six weeks and, like I say, technically two, I mean, if you're, once you started two, you're in mid-childhood, but between six weeks and two, that's more the, the typical things that happen, say, in like a teenage acne where there might be some inflammatory things, some hormonal things that are happening, but not as playing as big a role. But that's considered a normal thing to happen at that age. 
the mid-childhood years, when they looked at the data, that two to seven is where there was the highest number of possible, um, you know, endocrine abnormalities or things like that that were found. And so that's why that designation happened at two to seven. And then the other uh, the other two age designations are really related to like the natural pubertal development. So um, acne is often the first sign of pubertal development in any kid. So it's not uncommon at all to see, you know, eight-year-olds to come in with, you know, some comedones on their forehead. And the parents are always kind of like, she has this rash. And I, you know, we've been using all these over-the-counter things and nothing's helping. I'm like, oh, it's acne. They're like, but she's only eight. You know what I mean? Um, And so oftentimes it's the very, very earliest sign um, that things are starting to kick into full gear. Wow, that's really, that's really helpful. And to think about it as sort of like a precursor to sort of like adolescence, um, and then also kind of worrying about what other things could be causing this mid childhood kind of range eruption. I guess what else, not just like what could be causing at different age groups, but what else is on your kind of differential diagnosis for things that look like acne, but wouldn't be acne? Okay, so in your neonatal period, neonatal cephalic pustulosis is probably the most common thing that people call baby acne. The big difference in terms of how you would diagnose those is acne. In order to have acne, you should have comedones. If you only see pustules, that's not acne. Okay, so if you you need to see comedones to call it acne in a neonate or an infant. So that's probably the most common differential thing. Milia. So sometimes people will mistake milia for acne pustules. I'm trying to think of the most common things. I mean, in obviously a super, super neonate, you could have some, um, some, uh, oh Lord, uh, mercy, the cephalic melanosis. I mean, that's, uh. Transient neonatal pustular melanosis. That's exactly what I'm talking about, Beck. You pass your boards right there. I use Dr. Google. <laughs> it was, com- I was completely blank, but yes, that's exactly. So, and you know, obviously you normally don't see the pustules in that. Rarely, rarely, rarely. If you see the pustules in that, that might be in your differential. Etox is not that common, you know, on the face. It can be, you know, it's more common on other parts of the body, but absolutely because you get little pustules from that too. So those would be the main things you would think about in your neonatal period. Infantile acne period or whatever. Um, milia, you can get those at that age too. Um, pustules, folliculitis, um, more not going to be less common on the face, I would argue. Impetigo though is pretty common on the face. Um, HSV, which is going to give you vesicles, but they're going to be much more transient. The whole course is going to be much more acute as opposed to more chronic like you would get with true acne. Um, in your 7 to 12, I would, I would say that's not too different from what you would see in your infantile acne in terms of your different diagnosis. Um, perioral dermatitis is a common thing that we see. Again, distribution is going to be the most, um, the biggest giveaway with perioral dermatitis. You don't see too much of that in your infants. You can, but you see a lot of that in your two to seven year olds. So perioral dermatitis is something to think about. Um, in your pre-adolescence, they get a lot of perioral dermatitis as well. One big thing to always ask about is that they use um, asthma inhalers with a spacer. So if they're using, um, if they're doing their um, inhaled corticosteroids with a spacer, that is a huge cause of perioral dermatitis. Um, so getting reminding parents to uh, clean and uh, wash the the spacer mask, um, and the sooner you can get them off the spacer, the better. Um, especially if it's an ongoing problem, um, if we can't get their perioral dermatitis under control because of that. I would say perioderm in the two to seven age is common. Same things as you see in infants, otherwise, um, and then your pre adolescence, you you get pretty used to calling it lichenitidis, which is, that's a more dermy, weird thing that can be on the forehead. You see that more often in your, you know, older kids. If you do see it, I, would f- I feel like y'all probably 
wouldn't necessarily know what that was if you saw it. Flat warts, weird, but can look like comedones. Those are probably your more common things that you would see uh, in those younger kids. I think that by the time they get to be teenagers, you're pretty good at saying, oh yeah, that's acne. Are there any other differentials that would be worrisome that we, we should not make sure that we don't accidentally call acne? I would say there's not many terrible things on the differential for acne. What I think you, <laughs> that makes me feel better. That's great. Yeah. What acne I think terrible enough, right? Acne is terrible enough. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Uh, what I would think um, is to recognize when it's not just acne. And that's where we're talking about the whole mid childhood thing. Um, so if you have a, you know, kids rarely get severe acne. So if you have a kid with severe acne, that's not normal. I will say that most of their mid childhood acne kids who you do the endocrine workup on will be normal. It'll turn out to be just acne. However, severity um, should play a, a, a role in terms of your suspicion. You know, if you have a infant with terrible cystic acne all over their face, that's not normal. You know what I mean? A little bit of acne is normal, but terrible cystic acne all over. Now, I put a one-year-old on isotretinoin before, but they had a single cyst that we couldn't get better. So, you know, there's certainly outliers, but really severe acne in, in younger kids is very uncommon. And that should definitely trigger a workup for, like I say, endocrine causes, other inflammatory causes. You know, there's all sorts of, I call it an, an abbreviation soup of things, Papa, Fapa, Papa, all of these things that can be associated with more severe acne. But again, in little kids, you know, a little bit of acne is no big deal. A lot of acne should bring all sorts of red flags for you to look for something else going on in that kid. That's super helpful. And this is a little bit off script, but just... I guess in terms of thinking about when do we need to do more of a like workup of what's behind the acne, sounds like severe acne in a like a younger like baby definitely abnormal um, or could be abnormal for that mid childhood age. When do you? How do you decide when you need to work it up? So those kids should get a workup no matter what. So yeah, those kids get worked up. Period. <laughs> and what are you ordering in your workup? Like what labs? So now this is where it's going to be one of those expert opinions. Um, if you look at the guidelines, um, they will say to do bone age, LH, FSH, free and total testosterone, DHEAS. When you talk to the endocrinologist, they will say, look at the kid, look at the whole kid, do a complete physical exam. If you don't see anything else but the acne, you can start with a bone age. If the bone age is not advanced, you don't necessarily have to do more. If you do need to do more, if the bone age is in advance, what they recommend is an 8 a.m. androstenedione, diome, a free and total testosterone, a DHEAS, and a 17 OHP. So that's what my like endocrinologist friends will recommend as their workup. But like I say, the guidelines are the first list that I gave you. And I've nowadays, like I say, because because most kids are completely normal and okay, I usually start with just the bone age. I don't draw labs on most of these kids. Because really, that's where we're worried about, right? We're worried about whether or not they're, they're growing too fast um, or their bones, I should say, are growing too fast. And so if their bones aren't growing too fast, even if they have a little premature adrenarche, you know, a little something, something that we're not worried about that. So it's fine. As long as their bones are fine, you don't have to be too worried. Now, if they've got clitoromegaly and they've got, you know, they're stinky and they got armpit hair and all that stuff, then, yeah, you probably need to do some labs. It all comes back to body odor. <laughs> yes, Becky, yes. <laughs> that, was a, that was a clinic pearl from today. Wow, amazing. Love it. That's super helpful. Thank you. 
And you mentioned a little earlier about the different grades of acne. How exactly do you, do you grade acne in terms of mild or moderate and severe? I, that's really very kind of gestalt. I don't think that there's any formal classification system out there. Um, that It really is gestalt. Anybody with cysts, you're going to start, you know, they're in the moderate or worse category. Comedones and pustules, if they're not covering their face, that's probably mild to moderate. If you got them covering the face, you're back moderate to severe. So it's really kind of a distribution and then a lesion type. That makes a lot of sense. One thing that we have been um, trying to do pretty actively on the Cribsiders is on all of our core pediatric topics, kind of look into and talk about what racial disparities exist um, in the treatment, the management. And I know that there's been a lot written about um, specifically dermatology and racial disparities in dermatology, especially because of the way that you know textbooks are written that sort of highlight white skin or certain race tones um, in terms of pictures and teaching. But I I was wondering if there are like racial disparities that exist specifically in the diagnosis and management of acne that you could talk a little bit about. I will say not probably so much in the diagnosis, but there's great studies to show um, disparities in treatment. Certainly access and subsequently treatment, but not even just access, even people who have access, there's lots of studies to show that people with black and brown skin are typically undertreated, that they don't get Accutane as much. They don't get oral antibiotics as much. They don't. So, yeah, there's multiple studies that have shown that there are racial disparities, racial and socioeconomic disparities in acne treatment. And do you know um, if those are for like specific reasons that seem to be related to acne, like specifically, or are just sort of like general trends of undertreatment of folks of color in medicine? The second part. So just kind of general themes that we see, unfortunately, in many different fields of pediatrics that are affecting also dermatology. There's a study that came out that showed there's actually less isotretinoin available in socioeconomically depressed areas. Like there's literally less of it available. And so now when you talk about excess issues, even if you have somebody who prescribes it, if the nearest pharmacy that you can get it from is 10 miles away and you don't have a car, how are you supposed to go get that? Yeah, there's just no way. So we, we talked about this, you know, Maya, you know, this 15 year old girl and she's, you know, I think that she's already talked about, she's done some face washing, some salicylate cleaner. Can you describe and discuss a little bit about, you know, general like over the counter treatments, maybe lifestyle modifications that patients may start off with, or even recommendations that, sh- that people may get from their pediatrician or even find online and what you're talking about? I'm just going to talk about TikTok medicine in a couple of months. So it'll be fun. Um, <laughs> Oh, no. Right. Yeah. You all, you know, you know. Um, So I think that, you know, in terms of over the counter things, sal acid washes are great for most people. Um, Anybody can be sensitive to anything. And so, you know, if people are experiencing any sort of discomfort, burning, irritation, or whatever with that, then they should stop. The other second most common, probably used over the counter ingredient is going to be benzoyl peroxide, which comes both as washes as well as creams and gels. It's a great, uh, the washes are great for, again, that kind of early comedonal acne and as a a first layer, you know what I mean, on which to build some other things and um, when the acne gets more severe. It's also a great spot treatment 
So for people who are not getting a ton of acne and they're, you know, they don't want necessarily have to use something every day, but when they do get that occasional pimple, it's a nice thing to kind of start to put the brakes on the, the inflammation, turn it off. And so that it goes away sooner than it might otherwise. So those are probably the three most common over-the-counter medicines that we recommend is salicylic acid. I mean, that's true. Salicylic acid, benzoyl peroxide. And the third that's available over-the-counter, which is going to be the best foundation for any significant acne regimen is adapalene, 0.1% gel. Um, when that went over the counter, it was like cartwheels. Amazing. That's awesome. Because uh, if you go back to the pediatric acne guidelines, basically for any acne out there, your base should always be a retinoid, period, end of story. For, like I say, unless you're just spot treating, um, for anybody who has more significant acne that you think they need a, a regular treatment for, the first thing you should be prescribing is a retinoid. Um, and so that is available over the counter now. Same rules apply in terms of anybody can be sensitive to anything. And actually, the most common thing to cause allergic reactions in all the acne world is benzoyl peroxide. So just people know about that, that, you know, nothing, certainly your acne can get, you know, a little bit worse when you first start using the medicines or whatever, but nothing should burn. Nothing should cause your face to be more red or swollen or anything like that. That can be an indic indicative of an allergy and you should stop. Same thing with adapalene. I consider it the mildest of the retinoids. That being said, everybody tolerates things differently. And so so if anything causes you discomfort, then you should stop and call, you know, your pediatrician or whatever to talk about what alternatives are. The things that can help you to tolerate these medicines better because all acne medicines, all acne washes can be drying and irritating is moisturizer. It is not counterproductive to use moisturizer when you have acne. The key is to make sure it's non-comedogenic. That means doesn't cause pimples. Now, the majority of things on the market are non-comedogenic. I used to say, I always say to the moms or the caregivers who are there, you know, only us old people, you know, want to put more oil in our skin. Like, so most things are non-comedogenic and don't cause pimples. So it's not hard to find those type of products out there, but that can help you to tolerate all of your acne medicines a lot better. The second tip I'll always give people is to start slow with especially your retinoid. So retinoids um, can get more tolerable over time. So you kind of basically get your skin used to it over time and you are able to tolerate it better over time. So I start most of my acne patients when they're on a retinoid just once or twice a week. And I'll tell them to do that for a couple weeks. If you don't get too red, too dry, too irritated, go up to twice a week. Do that for a couple weeks. So a really slow ramp up will help them to tolerate it much better. You'll find that if they go straight to doing it every night, the first time they get it, you know, they're probably going to be all red and dry and irritated. If you ramp them up over six weeks, they tolerate it much, much better. And what specific instructions do you give in terms of like how often should we should they be washing their faces? Which product goes on first? Which one goes on in the morning and which one goes on at night? Because I feel like they have really specific questions and sometimes I'm not sure. Yeah. So I recommend you in general, if they're not using an acne based wash, that would be a sal acid wash or a benzoyl peroxide wash. Um, usually I'm recommending a gentle cleanser wash, but to wash your face in the morning and at night. And that's because the acne medicines work much better on a clean face. Um, meaning all the dirt and oil has been removed. Then the first thing you should put on after your face is dry, because a wet face is actually more easily irritated. So after your face is dry, to put on your medicine first. Then you can put on your moisturizer on top of that. There's one particular retinoid, which is a prescription retinoid, where they have one study that they did mixing their product with a moisturizer, and it was just as effective. So it's not that you can't do that, but there's only one study that shows that you don't lose efficacy that way. But for people who are having trouble you know, tolerating it, that is something you can try mixing it with their moisturizer and see if they do better in terms of tolerability with that. But there's not good data on, on most of them to say that it doesn't decrease efficacy. So theoretically, medicine first, moisturizer on top. 
Love that. Medicine first, moisturizer on top. That's a, that's a takeaway. (laughs) Oh, and in terms of when you should use them. So um, there's now more, but the three main old school retinoids are adapalene, tretinoin, and and tazeratine. Adapalene you can put on morning or night, doesn't matter. Tretinoin and tazeratine are both UV sensitive. And so those should be used at night because theoretically they are inactivated by UV light. And so those, that's why we always tell people to use their retinoids at night. Um, and then, so if you have a secondary medicine, if you have a morning antibiotic, like a clindamycin or a benzoyl peroxide or a combination of the two, use that one in the morning and then use your retinoid at night. One question I have is you, you're saying, you know, there, there's, you know, there obviously, you know, even though you were talking in terms of broad strokes of the different types of categories that they can, that are over the counter, is there a place, uh, is there a website or some sort of handout that you give to your patients as they're trying to investigate? Because um, I, I could easily see walking to, you know, the pharmaceutical section uh, and then be like, all right, doctor said non-comedonal type lotion. And even though they're most of them, they're like, now where do I go to? Like, how, how, how do you do that counseling to them? Do you, do you say, hey, you know, these are certain websites from my, this dermatology group that I trust? Or like, how, how do you do that? We have, in our practice, we have our own list. I think most practices do have their own list of recommended products. Um, and the list that I give out for my acne patients is the same one I give to my eczema patients. Because basically you treat everybody like they have sensitive skin. And so there are certain lines out there, which I mentioned earlier, and you might cut, that are known to be very good products um, and are good for all types of different skin. And in general, um, you know, but I tell patients, if you use one of the ones I recommend and it causes a rash, don't use that anymore. You know what I mean? (laughs) Find something new because everybody's different. Everybody's um, got different skin and they have different reactions to things. So we have a list that we give out to patients that we recommend. Not that they can't use things off of that list, but that's where we usually say, these are good for kids with sensitive skin. We consider you having acne and using these products to have sensitive skin. And so this is a good place to start. Maybe we could maybe get a copy of that list to put on with our show notes, maybe? Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. That would be awesome. Yeah, I would use that in clinic. <laughs> and <laughs> do, you have tip- <laughs> do you have tips for, like, patients will often ask, well, I use, like, shea butter or there's tea tree oil, vitamin E oil, like, other things that they hear about on TikTok or social media. Like, how do we know if it's going to cause acne, if it's going to be helpful, if it's just going to be neutral? We don't, which is why I tell them poison ivy is 100% natural and you don't rub that all over your face. Uh, That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you don't know. You you really don't. And so you have to be really careful about, you know, what you're using because especially things that are labeled all natural because that, that has no meaning. You know what I mean? It literally has no regulation, no nothing. And so you have no idea what you're actually using. And the last time I checked, you know, leaves didn't come with cream. You know what I mean? So if you think you're putting something, quote unquote, all natural on your face, it's in a totally different form. It's been manipulated from the beginning. So you know that that's not just what's in there. There's preservatives, there's stabilizers, there's all sorts of different things in there that have nothing to do with the actual, you know, active ingredient, but can all cause different effects on your skin. So, you know, again, not saying that those things are automatically bad, but don't fall into the trap of thinking just because something says all natural or whatever, that that's not going to be irritating or damaging to your skin or problematic in terms of a person who's trying to get their acne under control. And you don't know. 
So I guess kind of going off of that, like things that, you know, are not necessarily medicine, but think people are trying, what kind of lifestyle modifications, say for someone that has like a mild, moderate acne, would you recommend like how many times a day should they be washing their face? Can they wear makeup? Sort of just normal teen things. What recommendations do you make for those questions? So usually, yeah, to, um, washing your face twice a day is in general good, unless you feel like, you know, that's more drying to your face. And then I would say wash it at the end of the day. That way you're washing off, you know what I mean, all the, the day's pollution and sweat and oil and stuff like that. Whereas I doubt that you get too much going on, you know, as you're sleeping on your pillow overnight. You're probably okay in the morning if you don't want to wash your face in the morning. Besides that, uh, I do not make any... Um, any dietary modification recommendations. There's zero evidence really out there to support any um, dietary modifications that make a real difference in acne as of now. Now, do I think that acne plays, I mean, that diet plays a role in acne? Absolutely. If you want to get into that data, then we can talk about that. But no individual foods or anything out there that we know right now that make a difference. What was the other? You said something different. Uh, there was something. You said wash makeup. your face. If makeup. They wear oh, yes. makeup. Yes, absolutely. Make sure it's non-comedogenic because that will be on the makeup label as well in general stage makeup not non-comedogenic so you can pretty much guarantee your thespians and your show dancers and stuff like that when they have shows and things like that they're going to break out because of all the stage makeup that they wear i can't not ask what's the diet component to i'm just we can (laughs) also not go there no chocolate right i (laughs) I always hear chocolate causes people to get break out oh if he talks to my mother it's 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 gospel if he talks to my mother it's gospel (laughs) there's no one specific food we're cutting out but what is the relationship between um diet and acne so remember we talked about acne being an inflammatory process so um acne when you look at the basic science and things that are happening in the skin some might argue and there's a great paper out there i don't have the reference for you but i can find it if you need to that talks about whether or not acne is actually the metabolic syndrome of the skin because the amount of acne that we have in industrialized nations which is basically you know 80 to 90 percent um, of teenagers in industrialized countries have acne when you look at other populations that have different dietary um uh, regimens, especially like, like, because they've looked at hunter gatherer populations that are still, you know, around now, they don't get acne. There is a genetic mutation um, in uh, that some ki- people have an insulin-like growth factor, um, and those people don't get acne. Um, and we know the insulin-like growth factor is tied to a lot of things that are happening metabolically when you look at the, all the different components of metabolic syndrome. Um, and so, like I said, there's some some decent theories out there about how acne really is a metabolically connected process. Um, and like I said, this person in particular who wrote this, um, this article, this provocative article said, you know, it's acne, the metabolic syndrome of the skin. And so what I tell my patients is, no, you don't need to avoid any one thing, but you can't have healthy skin if you don't have a healthy body and you can have a healthy body if you don't eat healthy food. So that's my advice. <laughs> I think that seems very, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So as a general pediatrician, one question I have is, all right, I feel that when it comes to acne, you know, over-the-counters and then topicals are sort of first line. 
And I may be tempted to say, well, if there are definitely some bacterial causes to acne, I might be tempted to try to do like topical antibiotics. Is, is there any indication ever to use like a topical Clinda uh, yes, or Adapsone? Yes, okay. So yeah, when we were talking about acne pathogenesis, circle back, talk about uh, P-acnes, right? Or the new name is Cutibacterium acnes. Wait, um, they changed it? They, oh. they totally changed it, which I was like, really? Really, people? What are we doing? Um, but yeah, so, but everybody, literally everybody in Durham still calls it P-acnes. <laughs> Um, but yes, it does technically have a new name. It is C acnes, not P acnes. Um, anyway, yes, that is the, so the bacterial component to acne, um, produces more inflammation because bacteria causes more inflammation in our skin. And that's where topical antibiotics, um, benzoyl peroxide also has some antibacterial properties, um, but topical antibiotics um, and oral antibiotics come into play is to deal with the, not only the P acnes because the antibiotics obviously will um, kill that, but antibiotics are very anti-inflammatory. And in dermatology in general, we use the majority of antibiotics that we use, not for their antibiotic qualities, but for their anti-inflammatory qualities. Um, And so the vast majority of, um, and we use mainly the tetracycline family or whatever, um, but we get both um, out of those medicines, both anti-inflammatory and antibacterial um, uh, components. Awesome. Thank you. That, that helps a lot. <laughs> yes, that's why we, yeah, and that's why we treat that part too. Yeah, I cannot believe I left off P. acnes at the beginning. So yeah, when you edit this in, you're going to edit P. acnes to the, to the front of this. C. acnes. C. acnes, yeah. C. acnes, exactly. <laughs> the, the cuter acne. The cuter acne, absolutely. <laughs> so let's say that our patient is doing all the lifestyle modification things you recommended, but the acne is like still persisting. Um, when do you reach for like the oral antibiotics um, and at what age groups can they be used? Any age group can use antibiotics. Um, obviously, in your littler kids, um, you're going to be more careful with doxy um, and minnow just because of the potential implications of the teeth. So a lot of the times I use erythro um, in the younger kids. But in older kids, anybody who's eight or older, then you're going to use one of the tetracyclines as first line. So doxycycline or minocycline. Most of us tend to start with doxycycline just because it has less of a um, scary side effect profile when you're on it long term. But really, you should not be on antibiotics more than three months. And so with three months, minocycline is totally fine too. Probably slightly higher risk of allergic reactions with minocycline. But anyway, anybody who has acne that is not responding to your topical regimen is a candidate for oral therapy. Anybody who has a primarily truncal distribution of their acne is going to be a great candidate for orals. And that's because just um, practically speaking, it is really difficult to use topicals effectively on the trunk. First of all, they come in these itty bitty tubes, you know what I mean? And you, you know, you've got a 16 year old football player or whatever, you know, he's, this is a massive human being um, and putting cream all over their back. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. Um, not that you shouldn't try those things, but for anybody with significant truncal acne, you're going to want to try to put out the fire. Um, at least initially with some oral antibiotics. So those are the two things. Anybody who's not responding to topical therapy, anybody who has primarily truncal acne, and lastly, certainly anybody who's starting to have acne scarring. So you don't want to play around with topicals um, when you see scars, like when they first come into you and you see scars. Again, try to put out that fire. Topicals take minimum six to eight weeks to be effective. And so you don't want to have ongoing scarring in those six to eight weeks while you're waiting for those topicals. Instead, you can put the, the oral antibiotics on, calm things down really quickly while you're giving your topicals a chance to come on board and when you say quickly like how quick is quickly and oral antibiotics can calm things down in a couple weeks 
Now, they won't get rid of blackheads. Let's be clear. <laughs> not going to get rid of your blackheads in a couple of weeks. But, you know, your pus, pus bumps and your cysts and things like that, all that will get better within a couple of weeks. And, you know, as you sort of discussed already, like some, some of these antibiotics, they also have some anti-inflammatory properties. Is, are we utilizing that as well in these cases? Yes, absolutely. I guess my next question is, if we're moving on to oral medications, um, when do we start thinking about oral isotretinoin? So again, I think that one look at the degree of scarring. So, you know, there's lots of acne medicines out there, lots of different combinations. And we could, you know, foodle around with acne medicines for years, trying different combinations. But if a kid has scarring and nothing's working, you really need to start thinking about isotretinoin sooner rather than later because we can't really fix scarring. Um, so any type of scarring right away, it should be at least, you know, you're considering, you know, whether or not we're going to get there sooner or later. Anybody who's failing antibiotics, meaning, and failing is two things. One, either they're not getting better on their antibiotics, their oral antibiotics, or as soon as you stop them, everything gets bad again. Um, because then you're looking at, okay, how long am I going to keep this kid on antibiotics? Which we know now, it used to be when I first started practicing, we would leave kids on antibiotics for years. As long as they kept their acne under control, everybody was happy. You weren't getting phone calls and my chart messages all the time. Fine. Happy to do it. Now we know better. You know what I mean? We realize how much that, you know, messes with your gut bacteria and the microbiome and how you're changing all sorts of things with that. And so that is not the way that most of us practice anymore. So any kid, and this is... um the way I practice, this is not necessarily, I don't think that there's a set of guidelines necessarily that people have to stick to with this, but anybody who is had one round of antibiotics or at most two rounds of antibiotics and they're not doing well, they are going on isotretinoin. And that's because, like I say, I think that the short and long-term benefits of isotretinoin, when you weigh it against the short and long-term risk of isotretinoin versus the same things when you consider long-term antibiotics is a no-brainer. Can you expand a little bit about risks? Are there special monitoring we need to do? Um, actually, can anyone prescribe osteotretinoin? You can, but you have to be registered in the government um, uh, program that regulates isotretinoin. So isotretinoin is a regulated um, uh, medication. And the main thing that they're looking for is trying to prevent pregnancy. So it's not looking for other complications of isotretinoin. It is only geared to prevent pregnancy. I will say that when we talk about um, ways that medicines have made some progress, the system is called REAMS. The old name is iPledge. It's probably what y'all know it as, iPledge. But the new system, which we started a few months ago, is called REAMS. But now we only have two categories. Before we had men and women or females and males. And now we just have people who can bear children and people who cannot bear children. Those are the two categories now. And so it because it created all of this, like, it was terrible before. It, you know what I mean? Because there was only these two categories and everybody doesn't fit in those two categories and it was just a mess anyway so we have made some progress in that it is still a very very cumbersome thing to work with um, and you have to be registered in that system in order to prescribe isotretinoin but absolutely anybody can prescribe it but you have to be registered with the system because everybody has to be um, all the boxes have to be checked in the system before the pharmacist will dispense it so even the pharmacist has to be registered with the program. And when a kid brings in a prescription for isotretinoin, he will go into the iPledge program, make sure that they are what they call qualified to receive the medication. And so that part is the more like cumbersome and tricky part of prescribing isotretinoin, but anybody can do it. I would say you should, you know, definitely get comfortable with it, with the side effect profiles and things like that. Um, and everybody probably shouldn't be prescribing isotretinoin, but everybody can. 
What are those check boxes that have to be filled? For the iPledge program, for people who can um, have children or can get pregnant, it's a negative pregnancy test every month. That That is it. And that has to be when you first start the extra treadmill and it has to be two negative pregnancy tests um, within 30, I mean, two, two negative pregnancy tests, 30 days apart. And then once a month after that, and every time you take a pregnancy test, you only have seven days to pick up the prescription. If you fall out of that seven day window, you need another pregnancy test before you can pick it up. Very strict. No way around it. Don't even try. Do you have, as you're counseling a patient and you're, you're probably, as you're probably talking about this medicine, you're like, we have to check to see if you're pregnant all the time. And, you know, I'm sure there's lots of questions that come about that and why that is. Is there a spiel that you that you like to use uh, that you could share with us uh, on how to counsel patients about this? Yeah. So, I mean, there's also a lot of, you know, medical side effects that we talk about and that we worry about. Um, and so we we go over the the side effect profile. There's also a lot of misinformation out there. So I'm always addressing, you know, what people have heard about isotretinoin. When it comes to the pregnancy test, I'm explaining that isotretinoin is teratogenic, that it can cause deformities to unborn fetuses. And so for that reason, the government does its best to prevent that from happening. Now, we are dealing with teenagers. Teenagers are not the most reasonable, rational, responsible people in the world. And when you look at the data, there actually hasn't been that much of a reduction in unplanned pregnancies and people taking isotretinoin because they're teenagers and they are just, they're good at being teenagers. <laughs> um, but I just tell them it's, it's, you literally, there's, there's not a question. If you don't want to do the pregnancy test every month, you cannot have the medicine. So it's not even a discussion. <laughs> so, so what are some of those other side effects that you counsel on and what are the some of the, the fake things that people hear that you're trying to dispel? Good question. So um, I like to go head to toe, start at the top. So isotretinoin can cause increased intracranial pressure or pseudotumor cerebri. Um, it is most common when you combine it with one of the tetracycline antibiotics. So you never want to do that. You do not want to overlap somebody's tetracycline antibiotic therapy with their isotretinoin. You always want to stop it. I stop it two weeks beforehand before they start their isotretinoin. So I ask them, we tell them about headaches. So if you get any sort of headache that is unrelenting, that is not normal for you, that gets worse when you are straining. So if you, you know, if it gets worse when you go to the bathroom or worse when you're at the gym or something like that, I need to know about that immediately. Next is the eyes. So one, because isotretinoin can cause dryness, you can get some blurry vision from that. But also because isotretinoin is a form of vitamin A, which is a very important vitamin to the rods and the cones in your retina, we're essentially giving you very, very high doses of vitamin A that can be, and I, I always laugh when I say this, but slightly toxic to your, um, your rods and your cones um, in your retina. And so some people can have difficulty seeing at night because of that. Photophobia can also be with isotretinoin. And then I go down to the nose. So again, because you can get so dry, your mucus membranes can get so dry, nosebleeds can often happen, especially when you first start isotretinoin. And so be aware of that. Not a big deal. We usually use Vaseline Aquaphor in the nostrils or saline nasal spray. Um, and that's really usually all most people need. Um, then we talk about the lips. Like I said, dryness is a part of taking isotretinoin because one of the things it does is shrink your sebaceous glands. So you're not producing as much oil and moisture. And that tells me that it's working. If you're taking isotretinoin and you're not dry, you're not taking enough. I need to go up on your dose. Okay. So then we go down to the the innards of the person. We follow uh, liver function tests when people aren't yeah. isotretinoin. Um, and that's because it can affect your liver. So we check your liver function test because isotretinoin can affect your liver. 
We do fasting lipids because it can affect your cholesterol. Um, most significantly, your triglycerides, and that's the number you really want to pay the most attention to. I will say we find a good amount of hypercholesterolemia on these screening tests. And so it has been very um, helpful in some ways in terms of identifying a whole other issue that some families need to address. Um, but that's what we look for, mainly looking at the triglycerides. Um, you'll see old things that talk about checking the CBC because isotretinoin can affect the bone marrow. But years and years and years of use and studies have shown that you really don't need to check that. So we don't check that anymore. I always ask about abdominal pain um, because uh, the liver, possible liver effects um, from isotretinoin and bone pain, joint pain, muscle pain, long-term isotretinoin can cause bone issues. Is that the kitty cat? Yes. <laughs> Long-term isotretinoin can cause um, bone issues, bone spurs, things like that. Not the length of time that our kids are taking it, but people who are on it for years and years and years. And so I always ask about uh, bone pain. Like I say, joint pain, muscle pain. Some of my athletes will complain when they first kind of usually in the beginning of their seasons. They're more sore than usual. They're, you know, a little bit more stiff than usual, but that all works out. I've never had any um, anybody with any more serious. I had one kid when I was a fellow who probably had a particularly difficult first week and his CPK jumped. He had a lot of muscle cramp, pain and cramping and stuff like that. And so I checked the CPK and that was a little bit high, but nothing since then. So that's a really, really uncommon thing to see. And then there's a question of whether there's an association with isotretinoin with inflammatory bowel disease. Multiple, multiple studies have been done. Um, there's not any good correlations that have been noted. However, there's some questions about whether it's actually all the antibiotics these people were taking before they took isotretinoin that may be giving some false signals. Um, nonetheless, I always ask about it, ask about a family history of it. And we treat kids with IBD with isotretinoin all the time if they need it. So it's not, like I said, it's not considered a um, side effect of isotretinoin. But if it, when you talk about things that are out there in the um, in the ethos or in the literature or whatever, questions, that's one of them. And then the last thing we always talk about is the risk of depression or suicidal ideation. Again, multiple studies, multiple meta studies have shown zero correlation between the two, but that is very much out there. Um, people are very much afraid of that. But again, despite the fact that we've seen no correlation, I always say to them, if you feel like you feel differently, if your parents notice that, you know, or you as a parent notice that your child is acting differently, stop and call me. I treat kids with diagnosed mental health uh, issues on medicines and things like that with isotretinoin all the time. The psychiatrists have no problem with it whatsoever. But I will say, you know, have I ever had a kid who said, yeah, I just didn't feel right when I was on it? Absolutely. So medicine affects everybody differently, but the literature is very clear. There is no link. And in fact, the literature says the opposite, that the mental health of people is actually much, much improved when they are on isotretinoin because their skin is better and their self-image is better and their confidence is better. And all of those things are better. So people will ask you about that, but the, the literature is very clear. Multiple studies on multiple levels, no connection between the two. Yeah, that was really helpful in terms of going through system by system and knowing kind of how to counsel patients on, on the potential side effects. And as you mentioned, you know, skin has such a big impact on how teenagers see themselves. And so many teenagers have acne. As general pediatricians, when should we start thinking about referring to a dermatologist rather than kind of managing it ourselves? I think if you see scarring, you should probably think about referring, especially if you know that you're not comfortable or not able to prescribe isotretinoin. I think if everything you're doing is not working, you should be ready to refer. Now, we have a huge access issue. So part of what I do is a lot of lecturing to get pediatricians more and more comfortable with doing more. 
So because, you know, everybody can't just refer to the local pediatric dermatologist, the local dermatologist, especially if you don't have um, the right insurance and things like that, it can be really, really challenging. But I think as soon as you feel like what you're doing is not working, it's time to refer or if you're seeing ongoing scarring. Now, if the person comes to you with scarring, you put them on a great regimen, you get their acne under control, and that's just what it is, then I think that that's okay. Um, scarring is something, the tretinoins and the adapalines and the tazeratines, the retinoids that you give, tell them that will continue to help with their scarring. So not only do you want them to stop their treatment regimen once they get better because it'll come back, but let them know that if they do have some scarring, some hyperpigmentation, some post-inflammatory erythema, all of those things are helped over time with the their retinoid. Retinoids are like the Swiss army knife. You know what I mean? It's doing everything down there. Love that. So a class of therapy, which I've, you know, I definitely hear from patients that helps improve their acne is hormonal therapy. And you've also said before that, you know, obviously there's a lot in terms of uh, hormonal shifts that can cause acne. Can you discuss a little bit about oral contraceptives or even other medicines like spironolactone and uh, where it may fit into management and treatment of our patients? Absolutely. So both of those are obviously only for girls and women. You don't want to treat men with either of those. They are both really effective. They do take time to work. Okay. So you got to tell them that whenever you're investing in hormonal treatment, you got to give it three months. All right. These are not like antibiotics, not even like topicals. They take a lot longer to get things um, regulated is what I call them. Oral contraceptives, there are only three that are approved for acne, but in reality, all oral contraceptives will help. So you don't have to be you know, worried about getting them only on the ones that are approved because all of them will help. They all ultimately decrease ovarian production of testosterone. You know, so they're going to all work. As far as spironolactone is my most favorite living. Like I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It is wonderful. Uh, and I have used more and more of it over the years. Um, for anybody who has a hormonal pattern to their acne, and that's twofold. Hormonal pattern can mean that they flare with their menses. That can be a sign that hormonal therapy can be really effective. It's not that it won't help somebody who doesn't have those patterns, but in those particular cases, it can be really, really helpful. Or in people who have lower facial acne, that is a hormonal pattern of acne. So if you see somebody who a lot of their acne is down here on their chin, on their neck, things like that. Sorry, I just hit the microphone. Um, that, well, that helps it, people know where, where exactly you're pointing. Exactly where you're pointing because yeah. they can't see it, but now they can hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is a hormonal pattern for your acne. And you're going to see that and they might respond more to your oral contraceptives and your spironolactone. So hormonal things oftentimes can turn the door, I mean, can turn the whole case around for some kids. They don't even need their topicals after a while because they're so well controlled on their hormonal therapy. I send most of um, my college students off, uh, usually for the people who've had any significant acne, probably on one or both of those when they leave for college because they can just do so much better long term on those. And I don't have to worry about, you know, all of the, the drama of topicals and they don't want to, they don't want to, they got busy. They got to go out and get drunk and do their thing. They're not trying to put on the acne medicine every day, but they'll take a pill though. <laughs> yeah. So I guess wrapping up this case, our patient is doing well on all these oral therapies and she's curious like what the time course of her acne is going to look like. Is it going to go totally away when she finishes puberty or is she going to keep having acne as she goes into adulthood? I tell her next time I check my crystal ball, I'll let her know. <laughs> so no guarantees about when anybody's acne will go away. 
as we said in the earlier part of this this um this session like acne is not a teenage problem so people get acne throughout life you will meet um, people all the time in their 50s who are still frustrated by their acne so everybody's different and if and when that person's acne will burn out if you will and go away permanently you don't know until you know we 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 see how things go there's no way to predict is there a way that people can sort of how do you recommend people if they think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of at a point where I think my acne is really well controlled. Am I not need medicines? Do you just say, hey, take a trial off medicines and see where it's at? Um, and how do you do that with, I can see maybe topicals being easier to be like, try a couple of days without it. But uh, how do you do it with orals? Like, how do you do those trials off of medicine? Well, for orals, they should only be on it for three months. You know what okay. I mean? Like that's the that's the course of, an, you know, an oral therapy or whatever. If they're on birth control pills or I mean, I should say for antibiotics, if they're on birth control pills or spironolactone, I will say most people, and this includes topicals, self-wean. Does that make sense? So the majority of people are really happy with their progress and they're not anxious to stop their medicines. But those who do, they usually come for me to follow up and they're like, oh, I stopped using that because I was doing fine. So I don't, rarely do we have like a joint plan to stop their medicine. <laughs> gotcha. They usually come and tell me they stopped. I would say with the pills, especially spironolactone and um, birth control pills, oftentimes they, uh, the birth control pill also serves a secondary purpose. Um, and so when people go off to college, um, you know, I say, well, we're killing two birds with one stone. Um, you know, you don't have to stop this. You can continue it for any other reasons that you deem necessary. And they are, I'm happy to, to refill it as long as they're my patient. But like I say, most people will self-wean. We don't actually have a, a wean plan, especially when we're talking about topicals or hormonal therapies. This episode has been so full of so much information that I just like didn't know about. And also, I think it has really reminded me of how much, obviously, the skin is an organ system that's related to the rest of our organ systems and is totally representative of all of the other things that are happening inside the body. This is really awesome. I guess um, just to sort of summarize, what are some take-home points that you'd like to share with our listeners um, when they're thinking about pediatric acne? Okay. Take home point number one, mid-childhood acne deserves some sort of workup. Um, that's age two to seven, whether or not you feel comfortable enough starting with a, just a bone age, if they're, if all they have is acne and nothing else, or whether you, you know, if they have some other signs and symptoms on your physical exam or on your review of systems that make you more concerned and you do a hormonal workup, don't forget that's the age where you want to be really suspicious. In terms of acne medicines, a retinoid should really be the basis of any good acne regimen. That should be the first thing you're prescribing. Benzyl peroxide is a great equalizer in terms of if you're using topical antibiotics, you know, resistance is a real thing, even in using topical antibiotics, benzyl peroxide counteracts that. So whenever I'm using a topical antibiotic, I usually pair it with some sort of benzyl peroxide, either a wash or a benzyl peroxide topical to fight resistance because you won't get resistance with benzyl peroxide. Three, it is okay to use moisturizers. That is not counterintuitive when it comes to act. Four, treat the entire affected areas. Do not spot treat unless you have only a spot of acne. And that is because like we talked about before, acne is an inflammatory process. And when you do biopsies, and these are there's great studies out there of involved and uninvolved skin, you can see the inflammation even in uninvolved skin. And so our goal is to treat your acne and stop it from ever happening in the first place. If you wait until it shows up to treat it, you're behind the eight ball. 
You're already going to get some PIH, that's post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or erythema. You already might start to get a scar or whatever. So if treating the entire affected area helps prevent new acne, and that's our goal ultimately is to prevent new acne. And lastly, don't be afraid to step up your regimen. Do not sit there and let kids wallow and scar and, you know, um, get worse and worse and worse simply because you're like, I don't know why that, you know, 0.1% tretinoin's not working. Like, you know what I mean? Don't be afraid to push the envelope as physicians. Like you, you need to be aggressive. Acne is a disease, just like everything else. You know, do not say, oh, it's just acne, especially if that kid wants to treat it. Oh, one more. I didn't know I said five. Now I have six. Um, meet kids where they are. Do not send, you know, like I say, a 11 year old home with 15 different tubes of medicine no, they cannot handle that. They are not going to do all that. You know what I mean? And so all you're going to do is frustrate them, their parent and yourself. So be sure to be cognizant of who you're treating, um, what you're treating and what they want to do in their treatment. So sometimes I'll have, you know, a 15 year old come in face is terrible. And the mother is beside herself in tears. And the 15 year old is like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. And the mother's like, please talk to him. Ma'am. Like he's a fully formed human being and he has an opinion and you may not agree with his opinion, but he has an opinion. And again, you're not, and I do not advise parents putting medicine on their grown children. Like that is not (laughs) a dynamic you want to um, encourage. So I say, you know, when he or she, or they are ready, they will treat their acne. You cannot force them. You cannot berate them into it. All they'll do is lie to you and say that they are when they're not. You know what I mean? Or you're just going to cause yourself angst that, you know, it's hard enough having a teenager in the house. Why are you creating drama? The phrase I use is, why are you fighting the air? Because that's what you're doing. <laughs> um, so, you know, meeting kids where they are. Sometimes if I know they need to be treated, if they're scarring and terrible, I'll say, okay, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do? And if they say nothing, I go, do you wash your face? Yeah, I wash my face. Okay. Can you do this medicated wash instead of the regular wash? Let's start there. And the flip side is true too. When they come back, you know, for three see people back. That is really important. Do not give them an acne regimen and say, good luck. Three months to four months. See everybody back. Everybody's confused about what you told them to do in the first place. Nobody's doing exactly what you told them to do in the first place. Like it's a mess. So when they come back in three months, you can have an actual real conversation about what reality looks like. You know what I mean? And what they're actually doing and what they're capable of and what they're not. Um, but no, kids will come back and they're not doing anything. And the parent is, again, all beside themselves. I told her I put her on punishment and she still didn't do it. Um, She's not interested, ma'am. And you wasting your time, my time and her time bringing her here because I'm going to give you the same medicine. And people will say, I don't understand, you know, why your medicine's not working. She won't use it, but it's still not working. Come on now. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Those are some of the best take home points I think we've ever had on the show. Yeah. Um, They're just coming like hotcakes. Isn't incredible. Life incredible. advice. Yeah. That too. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up the show, I want to, um, last give you one more, one more podium to to speak. Is there anything you want our audience to know about anything you want to plug any organization or website or book or anything else that you think that our audience should know about? Oh my goodness. That's a hard question. I wasn't expecting that question. Um, yeah, no, I can't think of anything. (laughs) Just wash your face. Wash your face. Wash your face. (laughs) I almost was like, I feel like I need to go wash my face. Yeah. 
And I am not scared to moisturize. Good, <laughs> good. Moisturizing is awesome. Yeah, I have one of those like really sensitive faces, so <laughs> I do get scared of things. So this is very reassuring <laughs> for me personally, for my sensitive skin. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we have so many other Dern topics. We we sh- we have to have you back because there's Happy. no way we can't have you back. Yeah. <laughs> Happy yeah. to come back. Oh, Absolutely. wonderful, wonderful. All right, thank you so much. You have a great night. You too, guys. Bye. This has been another episode of The Cripsiders. It's, it's for, for the kids! kids. Oh. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge formula food knowledge food formula feeds <laughs> Can newsletter. we read you yeah, this? Oh, oh, we should keep it on. This is great. <laughs> Check out our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Clara Mao, our executive producer for the episode, Dr. Max Cruz, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Becker McCulker. I'm Clara Mao. <laughs> and this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. And as always, as we've been doing in these last couple episodes, if you made it all the way to the end, I'm going to read off a poem written by AI. In fields of childhood where small woes emerge, acne finds its place and starts to surge. With budding life there blooms an unkind sprite, in tender years a blemish plight. Yet fear not, for there exists a gentle touch, guided by wisdom that knows so much. With keen management we softly intervene, fostering faces that are clear and clean. Pediatric care, a science and an art, soothes youthful skin, mends a tender heart. Thus, through patience and with medicinal might, we bring forth mornings of clear delight. See you guys. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.